Hello, and welcome to Research Software Engineering Stories. This episode of RSE Stories is brought to you from the UK and Europe, in collaboration with the Society of Research Software Engineering in the UK. My name is Peter Schmidt, I'm a Research Software Engineer at the University College of London, and I will be your host for this episode. My guest for this episode is Mark Turner from the University of Newcastle, in the northeast of England, where he leads the research software engineering team. The team focuses on delivering software engineering expertise for research projects across the entire university. Mark graduated with a BSc in Computing from Northumbria University in 2008, followed by an MSc from Newcastle University in 2012. In 2016, Mark was elected as a trustee for the UK Research Software Engineering Association, and contributed to the transformation of the association into a registered charity in 2018. And here now, my conversation with Mark Turner. Well, hi, Mark, and welcome to RSE Stories. Mark, you lead the RSE team at Newcastle University in the UK, but let's start with what led you to that role. How did you get there? So I've been doing what could be described as research software engineering work at Newcastle for about 10 years now. I really started being a software engineer in a research context before the term RSE was even coined. Uh, so when it did sort of come around and it came onto my radar at various conferences and things, you get this sudden epiphany moment where you're like, hey, that's me. In terms of having the job title as RSE, it's less than that, but writing software for research about 10 years. Before that, I was a software engineer in uh, industry. I'd been in a couple of software houses doing just generalist web development. And then before that, I'd done my uh, undergraduate degree. Okay, so you did web development mainly? Primarily, yeah. My degrees were just general computer science degrees. But when I'd joined industry and uh, some of the interests I had uh, led me down the path of web development. I was interested particularly in user interface design at the time. So it was natural to sort of go that route. At some stage, the Society for Research Software Engineering was founded, and I think you became a trustee pretty early on in 2016. Uh, how did that happen? That was really one of those moments when the stars just aligned for me. I had been at Newcastle by that point for three or four years, I think, and was getting to the point where I wanted to make sure I was doing a few extra things beyond the day job to try and get some evidence and reasons together for me to progress in my own career. So beyond just writing code all day. And then I saw that the first RSC conference had been advertised. And that was this moment where I was realized sort of a, hey, that's me. And immediately sort of registered for the conference as an attendee. And then noticed on the conference website that they also had a bit of an open call out for trustees for the what was then the association. I just threw my hat in the ring and um, emailed a bunch of people that I knew at Newcastle who were interested in software to say, I'm going to this conference and you should go. And I, by the way, I'm going to stand for election. And if you care about the quality of software and research, you should vote for me. Ended up being elected. All right. Okay. It was a rather small group then, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. It was The conference was sort of passionately attended, but it wasn't huge. But every attendee there, everyone you spoke to was just so excited. It was a conference unlike ever any I'd ever been to, really. I'd, given some of my the academic projects I'd worked on, I'd been to a variety of different conferences. 
But this was different. It was more like a big community meetup. It was really uh, invigorating and um, really great to see, really infectious enthusiasm for everyone. I, I still, obviously, I, I threw my hat in the ring for election before attending the conference. <laughs> it really just reaffirmed the thing that I'd made the right decision to stand. Well, it was the heady days of the startup, wasn't it? And the foundation of the whole thing. If we go back to Newcastle, your team is involved in a number of exciting projects and uh, two stand out in particular for me. One is the gamification to aid stroker rehabilitation. And the other one is monitoring damages to rock art cavings. They're quite different. And yeah. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about both of them. Both of these are slightly older projects that have been finished for a while, but they really sum up the type of work that um, I like to do personally. And that I think that the RSC team at Newcastle is really good at. The stroke patient uh, gamification was a really interesting one because it was a, a collaboration between computing science and the medical school at Newcastle. Newcastle has very strong medical research background. There's a very large hospital uh, right next to the university, the Royal Victoria Infirmary, and there's an awful lot of uh, world-class research goes on there. So as a university, Newcastle is, is very uh, drawn to that type of medical research. And um, the medics were interested in different ways of supporting victims of stroke after they left the hospital, once they returned home. And an idea that a medic had had was to look at something that was similar to a Nintendo Wii, this idea of um, you hold uh, two batons and then move your arms around and they can track with very high fidelity the uh, movement in three-dimensional space. Uh-huh. And the idea there was that these people were supposed to be doing their uh, exercise routines anyway, and all you're asking them to do is hold these two controllers and the movements in their limbs were the same. So instead of having therapists go out uh, every few days to do the regime with them, people were being asked to do it alone uh, with less frequent contact. The other advantage of getting the data was that you could track patient improvement over time in a way that was more objective rather than the clinician saying I can see you moving a bit better there you could put a number on that feeling because you had all the 3D point cloud data and this was very good because often immediately after a stroke understandably patients are in a lot of pain they're given uh, very powerful uh, painkillers types of drugs that you do not want to be on for long periods of time because of uh, risk of addiction GPs and people making decisions over care in the community type work once the patient's left hospital about their prescriptions can basically see the improvement and choose to reduce down the, um, the medication that they're on, basically. I assume that the application that you developed there was a mobile application, or at least one that runs on a mobile device. Is that correct? No, it was. this was quite a while ago. So it was actually running on a PC. It was a, a PC game. Right. Um, and the controllers talked to that. So the group at Newcastle who built the game, there's a, a games lab uh, in the School of Computing Science that has a, a long history with some regional games developers. The bit that uh, the RSCs worked on, or what later became the RSC team, was the sort of clinician portal. So all the data would arrive from the game and we'd be responsible for running an analysis algorithm at scale that a clinician had developed uh, with a statistician and then presenting, visualizing the data, basically bringing all the little bits together in a single web portal that a clinician could use to understand. But I think the other one is actually a mobile application. Did, 
monitoring damages to rock art carvings. Could you so this talk a little bit about that? Very different from the medical. Uh, mm, uh, indeed, the we got um, an inquiry from a guy called Aaron Maisel, uh, who's in the heritage sort of department in the humanities faculty at Newcastle, and he's a world expert in Neolithic rock carvings of various types. And the UK is actually fairly unique in the type of abstract art that it has. So when people think of rock art carvings around the world, they might think of things like cave paintings. Uh, but in the UK, all of our rock art is abstract shapes. So it's um, concentric rings, uh, circles, symbols that mean different things. And much of this, it's spread mainly around the north and Scotland, but it is actually all over the country. And the care of these sites is only managed by the council in which the site resides. There isn't like a specialist group or anything like that. So um, Aaron was interested in seeing if we could conduct some sort of citizen science experiment and put a mobile app in the hands of volunteers who would go out and photograph all of these sites and fill in a questionnaire and also use the phone to collect other data beyond imagery. You can imagine that the person goes to a particular site, they find the rock carving, the questionnaire will ask them basic things, ask them to judge the condition of it. So things like how much lichen or moss is on it, that kind of thing. But there's also other things you can do with the phone that removes the person having to sort of use their best judgment. You know where the phone is, for example. So the GPS was useful. You can say it's exactly there rather than asking the person where they are. You can place the phone on the slab of rock where the carving is and that will get you the inclination of the rock so that one of the things that puts these things at risk is uh, water either pooling on the surface or running over the surface if it's a sufficiently steep angle that kind of thing you can use the accelerometer for that you've got the compass in there to figure out whether face is maybe north facing so it doesn't get any light all these things combine to um, put something at risk or not the um, the academics in the heritage department developed uh, an algorithm that produced a sort of traffic light system result. So a site could be described as in good condition, like at risk or critical. I can't remember the exact words we used, but it was that sort of three-tiered system. In cases where it was particularly at risk, we would bundle together all the responses from the report with the pictures and the data from the phone. It would go into a a web portal, but it would also uh, be emailed to the contact that we had in that council in that particular area of the country uh, who was responsible for um, heritage monuments. So there was this real sort of citizen science way of getting information from the person's hands holding the phone to the decision makers and the people who set policy. It's quite an interesting project on a number of different levels, A, because it's citizen science, but also because it's mobile technology. How often do you come across that people actually request you to do a mobile app? Reasonably often wouldn't like to put a number on it. Most of the time that we do get the request, though, it is usually for either citizen science style project or something where you're trying to reach a a mass market of one kind or another. Uh, We haven't had any requests for apps where they have really niche applications. We're in discussions at the moment with a couple of academics about different types of research grants that involve more medical interventions, but it's for cohorts of patients who have fairly common ailments. So there's probably hundreds of thousands of people in the UK with those types of conditions. So the natural thing to do is to pursue a mobile app because you know that everyone has reliably got a smartphone these days. 
So it's usually in that sort of scenario where your user base is going to be in at least the hundreds, if not thousands. But I think it's still not the millions that you mm. would normally get in, no, let's say, no. apps like WhatsApp. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> things like that where you've got billions of people downloading it. It might be a larger number. It may not just be for one research team, but it's something like for a patient cohort for hundreds and thousands of people. Yeah. Uh, what, what about the technology stack, staying with mobile for a little bit? I mean, what have you been using? Have you been using mobile, uh, sorry, mobile native development or something called cross-platform? And if so, what technology did um, you use? We've always used cross-platform, and there isn't a very good reason for that beyond skill set. Given uh, my background as a web developer, they were the tools and languages and techniques that I was most used to. It isn't necessarily a choice of the, the best language for the job. It's the what can I build in a, a reasonable time frame with a learning curve that I can commit to. We've uh, used things like Cordova was what the rock art carving app was built on. That's basically um, slowly dying now, I think. Uh, we've used Ionic in the past, which is the Angular version of that. Dabbled with uh, React Native a little bit, but again, that's sort of built on um, the way that compiles is slightly different, but it's still fundamentally a, a web app sort of way of thinking about the world. So, yeah, we've gone down that route. Let's go back to your role as head of the Research Software Engineering Group in Newcastle. And the reason why I want to go back to that is because we trained as scientists and engineers or worked as engineers in the private sector or even as research software engineers in some universities Nothing really prepares us for managerial roles. I mean, how was the transition for you? That's an interesting question. I um, found the transition to be quite exciting and enjoyable. I think when you're used to building things and coding all day and all the excitement that brings, it can be seen as quite dry to move into management. But I, um, I found it quite exciting, to be honest. Which aspects, actually? Well, one of the things that I really like doing is hearing about other people's research. Because I'm leading the team, My part of my role is to go out and meet other academics and be that first point of contact, discuss how the team works, hear about potential research projects and how we might be able to support them. I really see RSEs as being in a support or service role. So we're there for the benefit of the researchers and just being a small piece of what can sometimes be very large research projects can be really exciting. The variety that RSCs get is unparalleled, I think, in the sort of research space because most academics are working in a particular area and RSCs are quite unique in that regard. So although I'm maybe not doing as much coding anymore, still being involved in those projects and hearing about what's happening in them is, uh, is exciting. I mean, we know how to train as software developers and engineers. I mean, either self-taught or... Uh, you have a computer science degree or you learn the trade somewhere in a job somewhere. But what would you like to see to prepare future RSE managers for their role? Because the RSE movement is growing and with that, the need for management is growing as well. What would you like to see to prepare people for that step? Really just depends on the individual and their motivations for moving into that role. Mm. It was something that I I didn't Worry would be a strong word, but it was something that I knew that I had to prepare for. I knew that I couldn't just wing it. I couldn't just come a manager overnight and think, right, I know what I'm doing. I was quite cautious in that regard and making sure I 
read up on different styles of management, read up on the different things that would likely happen and that I would come across in different scenarios. That really centered around recruitment for me particularly, and then also how to bond a team together. So I did a lot of reading about those types of activities. So when I took over the team, there was I inherited one member of staff, and then we had a whole raft of research projects that we had committed to, but had no staff to do them. And so I had immediately had to go on a recruitment drive for four people in one call. So I was really, at the same time as learning the ropes of becoming a manager, having to make hiring decisions and make them as a manager rather than just a which of these people are nice and who would I like to work with. So I was making more strategic decisions really early on. And I found that just latching onto this idea that there's no point in hiring people that where I could do their job because I almost want to be the stupidest person in the room in our team meetings, right? I want to constantly be hiring people who are, have better skills than me, better experience than me in in different areas, make sure I put together a really diverse team in both experience and background and also skill set. Preparing for management by reading all these different things of different ways people have put teams together and what it meant to have a successful team really prepared me for recruitment. And then once those people are in post, how to effectively lead them, how to give them the the scope and the free reign to do it their way rather than me telling them what to do. What kind of techniques did you pick up on then? Well, so say, for instance, in recruitment. In recruitment, it was particularly looking for people who were different from me, all manner of different ways. So I think people think to have a diverse team just means maybe like gender balance or something like that. But what I was looking for was really different experiences and backgrounds and different routes to where they were at that moment. I could have gone out and just got another 10 computer scientists, for example, but that's not really going to give the team a different perspective in meetings when people are discussing different things. One of the things I often say in presentations is that I I really like hiring unusual people. I want people with really strange backgrounds who, for whatever reason, have left their the route that they'd taken on their undergraduate degree. So maybe someone's got a degree in biology or something like that and has somehow ended up being an RSE. I, I like that about RSEs, that most of us have unusual roots. That variation that I prize above all else. I, because if you're moving around and trying different things, it shows an inquisitiveness that is that I find really valuable because of the work that we have to do. As an RSE, you're going to go into a new project kickoff meeting knowing nothing about that domain at all. And I have to be confident that the person I give that job to who goes into that meeting is just going to be like a sponge and just soak up all of that domain knowledge that they've previously known nothing about. It's that type of person that I um, that I really value. It could be that we have an applicant who is a really, really strong programmer, but unless they've got that that sort of curious nature, I'm going to go with the person who's more curious all the time, every single day of the week. And I think I've been really lucky to put together such a great team of people who are exactly like that. Also opens another question. I mean, you kind of alluded to that RSEs go into different research areas and they need to adapt fairly quickly. That uh, is also my experience with the RSE roles that we have here at UCL, which is more or less a generalist. But with growing team sizes, do you think that there is a need for RSEs to specialize in the end? Like, this is the bunch of people that are going to do web development. This is the bunch of people that do HPC. What do you think? 
Yeah, I think that's going to be a problem as teams grow. And it's certainly something that we're wrestling with at the moment. There's a good chance in 2021 that I'm going to have to recruit a few more people into the team. And so we're already sort of thinking strategically about what type of person we're looking for. Do we just want more generalists? There are some projects that would really benefit from a specialist in any given area. The problem is that we don't necessarily have enough work to sustain that type of person full time. One of the ways I like to set up um, the team at Newcastle is that everyone works on two projects at once. Everyone's 50-50 and that's deliberate so that people get variation and they can try different things. But it means that if I've got a specialist who's got like a deep technical specialism, I almost need to find two projects that they could work on at the same time that are both long enough that I can offer a decent contract to, which is quite a hard hard thing to do, which is why everyone just falls back to the, the sort of generalist picture. So until the sort of landscape changes a little bit where it's less risky to hire RSEs because you're supremely competent, you'll always get the work, it's a, a tough one. The only example I can think of where I would get someone overnight would be we could really do with like a graphic designer user interface person who can just give a layer of polish to everything we produce. We've talked about this a couple of times in the past with the team, and we're all in agreement that we need such a person. We have so many projects that this person, with the context shifting for this poor person, they'd be doing like 10 projects at once, but tiny little bits of them, which may lead to being quite a, an unfulfilling role if you're just constantly rushed off your feet. So I need to think carefully about how to um, get someone like that. But that's an example of a specialism where uh, we would definitely take someone, but then the question becomes, well, how do you deploy them? To your point more generally, though, to me, the hiring of specialists is a symptom of growing pains for teams that are moving from like the size of 5 to 15. Once you get past 15, I think that most teams probably could support a specialist of one kind or another. But I think you've got to get to that size first before you can take that risk. There is one thing that you mentioned, which is context switching. I appreciate that it gives people the variety, but there's also the danger of context switching, and context switching can be quite a productivity killer because it's usually not just these two projects that you're doing. You also have meetings, and you know, there's uh, also the, the other stuff that goes on in an office. Do you think that it's a wise thing to put people on two projects? I do, yeah. I still think that it, the context shifting is risky for all the reasons you've said. Um, but it's one of these situations where the benefits outweigh the costs. To the individual RSE, that variety and doing different exciting projects is why they take the job, right? So RSEs could get a job in industry for significantly more money in most cases. So there's something else keeping them in academia. And it's the the variety of work I find is the most common response that the type of projects that you get to work on an R, as an RSE is so different from the commercial sector but that's what keeps people here so you want to give that variety it also means that people with different skills can have an impact on more than one project at a time to the benefit of both of those projects so if you were to have an RSE work full-time on something that means obviously that they're not working on something else and that mm. project either has to um, be turned down or it has to wait or we have to recruit. It sort of touches on this idea of specialisms. 
where if you have a specialist in any given area, within reason, it's a good thing to do to spread that specialism around so that the most number of research projects get the best value. Obviously, with the caveat that you don't want to completely overload them so they become completely ineffective. But it, it's about juggling the resources you have as a, as a team manager and making sure that as many of the research projects that you get inquiries for are not just fulfilled, but fulfilled to a really high standard. The other question that I have is if we want to compare the role of an RSE, say, with the private sector. So the first thing that might come to mind that we're more or less like software consultants and contractors. Is there something that you feel RSEs are, sort of the, the kind of software consultants and contractors, or is there, is there an element that you see is different? I think there's an element, but I, I do broadly agree with you that to see ourselves as contractors, that isn't necessarily a bad thing, right? Because fundamentally what a researcher is doing, they're, they're paying into the team for that skill and that experience that comes from their grant money they could just as easily try and hire their own RAs or something like that and try and muddle along and do the best they can with the code. But there's a reason they come to RSE teams and it's because of the skills and experience. So it's not necessarily a bad thing to see yourself as a consultant in that way. Um, I think where it's different from commercial consultancy is that there's no cost and price incentive to make, no profit incentive, basically. All I have to do as the team manager is, is balance the books. It's almost like running a non-profit. I have a team of people. I know how much that team costs to run. And so long as we bring in um, into the team enough research income to keep the team running and keep hiring people, then I'm happy. I'm not trying to make money. I'm not trying to make turn a profit. Whereas a commercial consultant would be doing that. So it's in their best interest to keep their clients hooked to their service. So where the RSEs differ is that you want repeat customers, obviously, but you want repeat customers because they've had a good experience working with you before and want to just move on to the next the next big thing, the next research project. This ties in neatly with the idea of running training for researchers. So you don't want to be in a situation where in five to 10 years time, you're still delivering courses on how to do version control to RAs because you want to get to a place where all the easy problems are solved by running training and what's left, all the hard stuff, all the exciting, fun stuff, is an RSE project. We're getting close to the end of the podcast now, but there's one question. So given the times we now live in with the pandemic going around, how has this coronavirus crisis been for you and your team? What kind of impact did it have? It's been a challenge, like it has been for everyone, I suspect. Every individual in the team has dealt with it differently. Some have found it easier than others for various different reasons. We've got some people who have childcare commitments. We've got other people who actually quite like working from home and have found it um, much easier. We've got people who really miss the, the buzz of the office and seeing people and being in a collaborative environment like that. And everyone has handled it differently. And we've just had to try our best to keep things as ticking on as much as we can. So it's been, it's been difficult. But I have to say that I'm very pleased how everyone in the team has handled it. Our productivity and the, the quality of our work has not been diminished as a result. Um, so it's really testament to my team that they've been able to, to carry on doing that. The last two questions now. If you look ahead into the future and you look back to your career, what do you hope you had achieved by then? <laughs> very difficult to think, really. I um I think one of the things that I care most about is making sure that there's a a route behind me 
for other people. And I, I know that other RSE leaders in the country are, share this view where a lot of us have had to work very hard working with our various HR departments and finance and other academics and funders and all that political and paperwork stuff just to get mm. the jobs that we have and the roles that we have and start some of these successful teams. I just want the, the person who leads the Newcastle RSE team after me to not have to do any of that, to not have to uh, have those political fights and, and make the arguments and make the case as to why the team should exist. For me to look back, it would be that I've blazed a trail for, for someone else would be a very <laughs> successful thing for me. Okay, excellent. And finally, what do you do in your spare time? Before this year, before the uh, global pandemic, my mm. uh, greatest passion is for uh, travel. Um, so obviously I've not been anywhere in, uh, in, in a little while now. Um, <laughs> yes. About 10 years ago, I backpacked around the world and um, got a real taste for sort of adventurous travel and haven't looked back since really. And I'm fortunate that my wife also likes to travel in that way. And uh, we go on a lot of adventures together. So we look for places that are perhaps not in the holiday brochures. We're quite happy to go into the jungle of Borneo or go sled dog racing in Lapland. And uh, <laughs> a couple of years ago, I went with some friends across Ukraine and Belarus, went to Chernobyl. So places mm-hmm. that you wouldn't ordinarily think that's a holiday destination, that kind of No, thing. Chernobyl I wouldn't, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that's my um, outside of work. Travel is my uh, my great passion. Well, thank you so much, Mark. That was a great interview. Thank you so much. And uh, I wish you all the best for the future. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show and we would like to see you again in future. If you like this episode, it'll be great if you could leave a review wherever you download your podcasts from. And with that, goodbye.